Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in. We're on our second Stoker Award nominee. Last week we heard from Alyssa Wong, and this week we will hear from Jean O'Neill. Having this episode does give Tales to Terrify a bit of deja vu. We have heard from Jean before, 213 episodes ago. In episode 10, that is. We featured his story, Graffiti Sonata, because it had been nominated for a Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction. And here we are again with Jean O'Neill's the Algernon Effect from White Noise Press. Jean has seen over 140 of his stories and novellas published, several reprinted in France, Spain, and Russia. Some of these stories have been collected in Ghost Spirits, Computers, and World Machines, The Grand Struggle, In Dark Corners, Dance of the Blue Lady, and The Hitchhiking Effect. He has seen five novels of his published. Jean has been a Stoker finalist 11 times. In 2010, Taste of Tenderloin won the Haunted House Collection. In 2012, The Blue Heron won for Long Fiction. Upcoming in 2016 are the two PPBs in the Call Wilds Chronicles from Written Backwards Press. The novel The White Plague and a novella collaboration with Chris Mars' Entangled Soul are being read for placement. I asked Mr. O'Neill for a little background on his story, and this is what he told me. I was a jock, and after college taught adaptive P.E. for eight years. I found many of my students to be special, indeed. 
I've written two tales to show how remarkable Dance of the Blue Lady and the Algernon Effect, where a special character makes a remarkable sacrifice for another. And now, Gene O'Neill's The Algernon Effect. The sharp edge of a razor is difficult to pass over. Thus the wise say the path to salvation is hard. Katha Upanishad As one might expect, there had been an increasing barrage of media calls to my literary agency, Benjamin Blue and Associates. Both the main office in San Francisco and even more to the new branch in New York City, all wanting to know the same thing. Whatever happened to our best-selling client, the novelist Timothy Scully? He'd dropped completely off the literary radar over a year and a half ago and never surfaced again. We'd done a pretty good job ignoring or sidestepping some of the information requests most of last year. But lately, when pinned down, I implied he was working on a big new novel in strict seclusion somewhere. Of course, this was far from the truth. After his incredible mental transformation, Timothy Scully didn't have the desire to ever write another novel again. October 2012 Actually, all this began two years ago, when my major client at the time and I hiked up from the temporary parking lot on Monticello Road, a mile up Mount George. There was a shuttle, but we were late in arriving and missed the early runs. We were attending an invitational fundraiser for the Mountain Farm, a sheltered group living facility located on the western slopes of Mount George. As Tim Scully and I huffed and puffed up the last steep 100 yards or so of the gravelly road, we could hear the familiar strains of Take 5, the opening saxophone riff. I was excited to finally get to see the Dave Brubeck Quartet in person, the reason I'd browbeat Tim into coming to the fundraiser in this relatively isolated facility in the eastern hills bordering Napa Valley. Austin Greenway, a renowned jazz saxophone player himself, had originally started the mountain farm. Ten years ago, he'd needed an appropriate facility for his younger brother, Sam, who had special needs and required a sheltered living and work environment. Now, there were 14 permanent residents living here at the farm, all young adults fairly close to Sam's age of 28. Austin was also a longtime personal friend of mine. I'd met him 30-some years ago at the Hungry Eye when I was a music reporter for the Bay Area Guardian. The week before... Austin had invited me to the farm's yearly fundraising event, always staged here halfway up the mountain, and asked me to bring along my client, Timothy Scully. Tim's novel, Regression to the Mean, had been a publisher's weekly and Kirkus Review's Red Star book, a New York Times bestseller, and was currently number one on the San Francisco Chronicle's hardback bestseller list, and had been for about two months. The invited guests, in addition to attending the fundraising, were obviously attracted by the opportunity to hear a live hour of Brubeck. He was in his 90s now and only doing rare short gigs. But also many here would have read Tim's book, and probably all of the guests would enjoy meeting a famous young author. There was talk of it being a National Book Award nominee this year. From the looks of the crowded temporary parking lot we'd left behind in a field off Monticello Road, Austin had ensured a good turnout. At the top of our climb, a circular asphalt driveway serviced the front of the main building, 
a beautiful, sprawling, western-style modern adobe. Then the driveway looped back uphill through the pine and oak trees, past two similar ranch-style bunkhouses, before circling back. We were greeted in front of the main building by a lovely young woman, stylishly attired in a cocktail dress that matched her mahogany eyes. She wore her raven hair, so dark it was almost indigo, in a neat pixie cut. The rosy blush that colored her cheeks looked natural, and her very full lips were bright red. She was wearing a name tag that simply read, Ellie. She spoke in a soft voice, just above the delightful music drifting up from the swimming pool decking, a hundred or so feet down right of the main building. The quartet was playing to the enthusiastic Sunday afternoon crowd. Perhaps two hundred people. The woman said, Hello, my name is Ellie. Welcome to the mountain farm. Would you like a tour of the place first, or would you rather go straight to the pool and listen to the music? As she finished speaking, her gorgeous gaze locked onto Tim's. And, for a few embarrassingly awkward silent moments, no one spoke. Obviously, my client was smitten by this very attractive young woman, perhaps three or four years older than himself. And she appeared to be interested in Tim, too. Finally, I cleared my throat and said, Thank you, Ellie. Uh, we'll be going to listen to the Brubeck first, but afterwards we'd love a tour of your facilities. The young woman led us down the wooden staircase north of the main building where folding chairs had been set up on the decking around three sides of the pool, with more on level ground stretching out beyond the pool area. There were no empty seats, so we stood in the back of the last row. Ellie wanted to return to her greeting station up the driveway, but Tim had taken her hand to shake it and held it much too long, as if he were trying to prevent her from escaping. She didn't seem to know how to handle his clumsy attention and just stood there grinning back at him. Finally, I intervened. Tim, Ellie needs to greet any other late arrivals. Let her hand go. He glanced over at me, nodded, and then turned back to the young woman and blushed sheepishly. I'm sorry, Ellie. She kind of giggled and said, That's okay. You have a very nice, soft hand, Tim. I didn't mind. Of course, that sounded like a funny response, but I quickly shrugged off the passing thought, my attention drawn to the Dave Brubeck. The quartet had just launched into Blue Rondo a la Turque, one of my favorites. I thoroughly enjoyed the last 45 minutes of the performance, but as soon as the quartet finished their final note, Tim said, Let's find Ellie, Mr. Blue, you know, for the tour. He always addressed me politely by my last name. Typical Tim. He'd been brought up in relative seclusion on a ranch near Jackson in the Sierra Nevada foothills. His father was a renowned Caltech quantum physicist, semi-retired and writing books by the time Tim came along. His mother was a part-time creative writing instructor, commuting to Sacramento State. They homeschooled their late arrival, and he grew up shy and socially awkward, but very gifted mentally. He majored in statistics, combining it with an American literature minor, and graduated summa cum laude from Sac State College in three years. He worked for fewer than two months as a statistician in a small office for the State General Service Administration in Sacramento. He hated it. But during that brief period, he spent most of his waking moments frantically completing his first novel, which he would call Regression to the Mean. He wrote it for and dedicated it to his mother, who was dying of lung cancer. 
Not long after publication by a small Bay Area press, the book was discovered by the New York Literary Establishment, soon acclaimed by critics and eventually became a bestseller. By then, Tim was back home in the Sierra foothills, leading a reclusive lifestyle, a bit like one of his favorite writers, J.D. Salinger. The book was more or less a unique love story, with disparate lovers undergoing a weird physical transformation. A very dark, mysterious woman, a sculptress, moved in next door to a young man. He was 17, and she was 40-something. He modeled for her. They became lovers. She had fashioned an intriguing and beautiful statuette of the boy, the facial features very vague. But soon, the features of the statuette appeared to mysteriously begin aging, as did the boy. Simultaneously, the sculptress seemed to grow younger. The book ended with him an old man, and she a young girl. But the compelling literary interest in the book, other than the incredible aging aspect, was the in-depth, step-by-step examination of the relationship between two lovers at several different stages in their aging. A remarkable degree of insightful, sophisticated speculation by a young, reclusive writer who had absolutely no experience with women, had only had a few real dates in his entire life, and probably never been laid. Of course, as his agent and early first reader, I recognized his extraordinary talent and the literary skill demonstrated in those first half-dozen compelling passages focused on the relationship between the transforming lovers. And I asked him directly several times just how he managed it. Where did the knowledge come from? He had no good explanation. said he'd kind of entered a fictional dream and wrote, letting the characters dictate to him. He chuckled joyfully once and said, Mr. Blue, it's really quite mystical, you know, and above the normal can. He said this with a kind of childlike naivete, perhaps even an otherworldly manner. And he definitely maintained this shy, childlike way, always addressing me in older adults formally. At the time, I lamely explained to myself that his literary wisdom and skill were probably acquired second-hand from his mother and all those good books she made available to him. For whatever reasons, Timothy Scully was the modern-day literary equivalent of Emily Dickinson. Early on, I realized that I was indeed very fortunate, because I was riding his coattails to the top of the New York literary establishment and beginning to make a lot of money in the process. I expanded my San Francisco agency by adding an office manager and two agents to handle the rapidly growing client list that Timothy Scully's success had attracted. Benjamin Blue and Associates was suddenly a highly sought representative. The growth on the West Coast motivated me to plan opening a branch in New York City. But Tim detested the celebrity aspect of his success, and from the start my shy, withdrawn client was definitely a PR nightmare. Watching him read in public was almost unbearably painful, making me squirm with unease. He couldn't do a radio or TV interview, looked and sounded like a complete klutz, giving nothing but one-word responses and never smiling. After those first disastrous skirmishes with public appearances, we agreed to do one very limited West Coast book signing tour, and only then because the PR staff of the publisher threatened to put a contract on me if we didn't. After the Rubeck Quartet concluded their afternoon performance and left, Ellie did take us on the farm tour. She led us through the main building, or big house, as everyone on the farm called it, 
passing a reception desk in the entryway, and making our way directly to the director's cedar-paneled office. His entire back wall was a huge window with a panoramic view framed by the Sutro Tower near San Francisco in the south and the village of St. Helena in the north. Ellie pointed down directly below us on Mount George to several acres of gnarly grapevines, Merlot. Just beyond the swimming pool area were two hothouses and several planter boxes, occupying a quarter acre at most. They grew exotic flowers in the hothouses, herbs and spicers in the boxes, all for commercial markets. After giving us a few minutes to admire the panoramic view, our guide showed us the rest of the big house. The larger right wing had a modern kitchen, dining room, and meeting room. The slightly smaller left wing housed a pair of small offices and four staff bedrooms. When we were ready, Ellie took us up the circular driveway to the pair of cabins, explaining that they were actually the residents' men's and women's dorms. Everything was very neat and clean, both cabins having identical recreation rooms with TVs and four double bedrooms for the residents. In the women's cabin, Ellie brought me up short when she opened one of the bedroom doors and announced, This is my room, and I share it with Mary Jo, who works in the kitchen. My God, I thought, this woman is not a member of the farm's staff. She's a resident. Stunned, I remained standing in the doorway, but Tim followed Ellie over to a small bookcase between the two beds. I know you are a famous writer, Tim, she said, pointing at the bookcase. I love to read and like being read to. Here are some of my longtime favorites I brought with me when I came to live at the farm. She handed one to Tim. He nodded, smiled at her, and opened the famous children's classic, Ferdinand the Bull. I remained silent, and apparently it didn't really appear to affect him in the least that this gorgeous, elegant woman with excellent social skills and a compelling personality was actually a resident here at the mountain farm. We were included with a handful of Austin's close friends who were invited to stay for dinner at the big house. We met four staff members, all dedicated professionals, including Edgar Bourne, the veteran director, who they were apparently losing in about a month or so. He was retiring and moving up to Portland, Oregon, to live near his grandchildren. After dinner, I privately queried Austin about our remarkable guide, Ellie, still amazed that she was actually a farm resident. He made a wry grin, nodded, and explained how she happened to be here. Ellie's twenty-four now. When she was eight years old and living in Wisconsin, she experienced a freak accident at a school picnic. A thunderstorm blew in suddenly, and a bolt of lightning struck a metal bench that Ellie was sitting on, electrocuting her. They rushed her to the hospital, where she was saved but remained in a coma for almost a month. When she finally awoke, she was intellectually impaired. Her parents raised her like any other kid, but after finishing school, she spent her days in a sheltered workshop. About five years ago, her grandparents, career winemakers here in the Napa Valley, were forced to take Ellie in after her parents were both killed in an auto accident on a freeway near Madison. They realized that this very attractive young woman required a sheltered environment and knew about the farm, hoping it would be an appropriate place for her. He paused a moment and shifted to the present. And with her social skills, stylish presence, and unusual poise, she's definitely an asset we often use when we have outside guests like today. 
but normally she enjoys working outdoors in the gardens and vineyards with our master gardener, David Grant, who you met at dinner. She and five other residents work under Dave's supervision on the grounds and even help prune the vines this time of year. And Ellie's grandparents contract all our Merlot grapes for their winery, he finished with a bit of a shrug. Quite a story, Austin, and kind of tragic for such an elegant, socially skilled young woman. Pretty sad for her. Oh, I'm not so sure about the sad part, he said. I think Ellie is actually quite content here. Except, she often complains, she really needs a handsome boyfriend. After a moment, I asked, That sexual aspect of your residence lives, a problem area? Austin slowly shook his head. No, not really. As you might guess, a number of them are couples. The staff stresses appropriate public behavior. But we're realistic, too. They're mostly young adults with normal drives. All the young women here, including Ellie, take the pill. Tim wandered over to where we'd been talking, Austin said. Thanks for coming, Tim. People really enjoyed meeting you, and I'm going to read your book real soon. Tim nodded absently, kind of dismissing the compliment, and said, I'm impressed with the farm, Mr. Greenway. Do you use volunteers? I'd like to come back and visit and maybe help out. Sure, visit any time. We do depend on many volunteers to provide the needed assistance during the grape harvest time. But we like visitors and part-time volunteers any time. They provide the much-needed social contact from the outside for our residents. See our director Edgar before you leave. He'll take care of the necessary paperwork, insurance liability and such. We said our goodbyes then. On the drive back to San Francisco, I tried to replay Brubeck in my head, but Tim couldn't stop talking about Ellie. No question he was quite taken with this young woman. At the time, I wasn't really too concerned. February, 2013 I finally returned from an extended business trip to New York City. I'd finished setting up the new branch office there, interviewing and hiring a manager with foreign rights experience and three young, hard-charging agents. I was interviewed by a literary magazine and appeared on a couple of radio talk shows. After taking care of business, I stayed in New York City a bit longer, enjoying the holiday season with a pair of old friends, the Edelmans. On my return to the San Francisco office, I shuffled through the stack of my office manager's pink message slips, stopping and studying one dated six weeks ago that read, Austin Greenway called and said that... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Timothy Scully was working out very well as a volunteer at the mountain farm. He has excellent agricultural skills, apparently developed during his youth. Staff and residents all like him. When will you be visiting again? That was good news, I thought. Tim didn't have any real friends or much of a social life since moving here to the city after his mother died. The farm was probably a healthier situation for him. That night I called Tim's marina apartment. He wasn't home. Then I called Austin, who lived in Pacific Heights here in the city. During the brief conversation, Austin mentioned that Tim was now up at the mountain farm as a live-in staff member. The next day, I traveled up to Napa. Tim met me in the lobby at the big house with a large smile. He said, Hello, Mr. Blue. It's good to see you again. I really missed you. How did the New York trip go? New branch agency off the ground now? I see we're still selling a lot of books. That greeting was about twice as long and effusive as any greeting in the past. Great to see you too, Tim. I must say I'm kind of surprised to see you living up here at the farm. You're a full-time staff member now? Yes, and it's great. I'm doing really well working alongside Dave, the master gardener, and a kind of jack-of-all-trades, but I'm learning a lot from him, some good handyman skills. We built a new pen for raising chickens. He paused, very pleased expression on his face, and added, And of course I'm spending a lot of time with Ellie. I nodded, and then asked, How's your writing going, Tim? Making any progress on the new book? I'd seen a brief two-page outline of an idea he had for his follow-up novel. It was about a young guy from a religious commune who was able to see the soul flash from the body at the moment of death. After only a few brief sightings of the soul flash, he became addicted to the experience. He eventually wandered San Francisco, dispatching members of the underclass for his fix. Tim intended to parallel the story with the heroin addiction in the city. But with him living and working up here now, I expected very little writing progress. Tim surprised me. Yes, I have the first 75 pages pretty well roughed out and I expect to have them polished and ready for you to look over in a week or two, Mr. Blue. He appeared proud of himself, knowing this would indeed please me, too. Really? Where do you write up here, Tim? Let's go down the hall to my room, and I'll show you. I followed him into the left wing of the big house. As we walked down the corridor of offices and bedrooms, he glanced back and said, You're staying for lunch, right, Mr. Blue? We're having a stew of fresh herbs and vegetables from the farm's gardens, home-baked wheat bread. Mrs. Shaw and Mary Jo made a fresh peach pie and vanilla ice cream for dessert. I wouldn't miss it. It sounds great. He showed me his writing area, with his iMac plastered with colored post-it notes, and his extremely messy desktop, 
papers and books strewn randomly. It looked pretty normal, just like his writing room in his tiny apartment in the marina. At lunch, with staff and residents, Ellie and Tim sat close together. I couldn't help noticing them whisper and joking easily, playfully bumping shoulders and touching each other often. And I thought to myself, they almost look like a normal couple. I couldn't help wondering if they were having sex, because they certainly acted like two young people who were very intimate. But I pushed the curious thought to the back of my mind, and of course never bothered to mention it to staff. After lunch, Tim walked me out to my new Volkswagen Touareg, and I asked him, "'What are your plans for the immediate future, Tim? "'You going to keep working here at the farm while you continue writing the new novel?' "'That actually sounded like a good idea to me. Seventy-five pages, in the last three months or so, was tremendous writing progress for him.' He nodded. "'I get up at 5.30 and write an hour and a half every day. "'Then, before I got into my car,' he added, "'Oh, Mr. Blue!' I've applied to Mr. Greenway and the advisory board of trustees to take Mr. Bourne's job when he leaves the first of next month. The director's position of this place? I said, in an incredulous tone. But you have no experience managing a non-profit caring for people with special needs. Yes, but I've talked to Mr. Greenway several times, and he thinks it's a little unusual, but a good idea. Funding is always the major problem here for a director. He thinks I might have a big advantage over someone coming from managing some other similar non-profit, be able to capitalize on my literary cachet to open a few doors, and maybe talk directly with some Bay Area CEOs. Perhaps intrigue them enough to visit and underwrite the farm. He paused and chuckled. And during the last month, I've actually secured a small corporate sponsor from San Jose, Biotech Solutions. That was really surprising to me. I wondered how Tim had accomplished that with his limited people skills. And I also worried about some of the other obvious necessary aspects of the director's position. The daily residence schedule? Personnel decisions? Public speeches? What about the direct public contact when outside people came to visit? And the maintenance of the infrastructure for a facility like this? Not to mention all the buying and ordering of things? Austin was crazy. I mentioned some of these immediate concerns to Tim. He just smiled, shrugging off my rude implication that he lacked competence. Actually, we already operate like a democratic commune, dividing up responsibilities. Ellie is going to be my administrative assistant and help with some of this, including most of the on-site scheduling and PR stuff. Mr. Greenway says he'll take care of most of the outside speeches and contacts. Dave Grant already takes care of most of the maintenance. Mrs. Shaw, the staff cook, does all the food ordering, and I can certainly pay the bills and maintain the books. I'm pretty good with numbers, you know. I was worried about the adverse effect of all this on Tim's writing. But I slipped into the car, figuring the board would never go for this, even if Austin did encourage it. That night, back home, I contacted Austin and relayed my doubts. Well, of course I've considered most of your concerns, Benji. But we're a special kind of commune, like Tim says. Staff and residents all readily accept and like him, smoothly cooperating together. And I think he's going to be a real asset as a director, hopefully helping us secure much-needed additional funding support. Informally, I've approached board members. We're going to try this. And that's the way the call it ended. July 2013
Even though I was worried about Tim having time and energy to write, I couldn't get back up to the farm for several months. We had signed a lucrative movie option on regression with a small independent film company with ties to Universal, and now they wanted to exercise the option. I had absolutely no experience with this angle, so I had to go south, secure a reputable Hollywood movie agent, and find a good intellectual rights attorney. Then, after getting the right professional help on board, we eventually negotiated a good deal, with my agency retaining several percentage points on the back-end profits. In addition to accomplishing all that, the agency had recently signed a well-established, best-selling client down south. I'd never met the Bram Stoker award-winning horror novelist Lucas Spaulding, but Luke invited me down to spend some time with him at his horse ranch near San Diego. I combined business with pleasure. Immediately on my return to San Francisco, I got caught up with the needs of our two hottest young West Coast writers. We were negotiating and in the process of placing their first novels with two New York City mass-market publishers. This required several quick trips back and forth to the East Coast. But of course, during this time, I had talked several times with Tim on the phone about our business. He sounded distant, but pleased by all that was going on commercially with his novel, the book sales, recent royalties, and the movie, and seemed more than happy to let me attend to all the necessary details. He still hadn't sent along the promised 75-plus pages of the new manuscript that we were now calling Death Flash. Finally, I was able to shake loose to visit Mountain Farm again. I stayed at the farm only briefly, long enough to pick up a folder containing Tim's work so far on Death Flash. I was taken with his improved social poise and conversational ease with me. He appeared to be doing very well in the new director's position, ably assisted by Dave Grant, Ellie, Austin, and the rest of the staff. It became obvious to me on that visit that Tim and Ellie were definitely living together in his room at the big house. She was still stylish and delightful to visit with, and her speech and manner were even more sophisticated. Again, Tim walked me to my car when it was time to go. I said that we needed to talk frankly. I asked him outright about his personal relationship with Ellie, and he admitted that they were deeply in love. But Tim, I said, trying to be as diplomatic as possible, Ellie is a resident here, and a bit, um, intellectually challenged, you know. He looked me in the eye and said, First, she's not challenged in the heart and soul, and I think you'd agree, Mr. Blue, those are very important characteristics. And second, she's an adult. I nodded half-heartedly. I didn't mention my concern about a staff member having an intimate relationship with a resident at a facility like the farm, and legally, her chronological age probably didn't really matter. Then, he added, Ellie is taking a remedial reading class down at Napa Valley College and doing quite well. I help, and we read together every night. We just finished The Old Man in the Sea. She loved it. Again, I was quite impressed by this last. I had to admit that Ellie did appear to be growing intellectually. But overcoming any of the brain damage done by the lightning when she was eight? Even with Tim's help, that seemed improbable. That night, I read the first 75 pages of Death Flash. Actually, I only got through the first 10 or 11 pages of the manuscript. It was a terrible mess, more like something a poor high school student would quickly knock out in bonehead English. 
None of it looked salvageable. But I was really busy now with both offices, anticipating the film development on regression, and I pushed the problem with Tim to the back of my mind. December, 2013. I took a disturbing call from Austin. The staff at the farm had grown concerned with Tim's behavior and his apparent intellectual decline. He mentioned they were worried that Tim might have suffered a stroke, but a full medical workup, including a CAT scan, revealed nothing physically wrong with him. Austin recommended I visit real soon, see what I thought about my client. I agreed to go up to the farm as soon as possible. I did call several times and talk to Tim, who indeed sounded increasingly distant, mentally distracted, and vague, although he assured me he was fine health-wise. But I kept procrastinating about going up, overwhelmed as I was by the immediate professional needs of the agency and our other producing clients. I was working 12, 14 hours a day and flying back and forth to the New York branch at least twice a month. But finally, I sucked it up and took a whole day off. March, 2014 Early that Monday morning, I met Ellie in the director's office. She explained she was filling in now while the board searched for a full-time director with appropriate non-profit experience. I was surprised by her announcement and finally managed to ask, What happened? Tim didn't work out? She shook her head, a kind of strained look on her face. I'm afraid not. Is he at least trying to write again? Maybe even in his room this morning? I nodded hopefully towards the left wing. No, he's not, Mr. Ballou. He's not writing at all. Hasn't been since you called last July after reading his apparently poor draft on the new book. You know, he was never happy doing that, leading the best-selling writer's life, especially being a celebrity. He really lost almost all his interest in writing fiction after his mother's death. She paused and then said, not even trying to keep the sadness from her tone. He can't live here with me at the big house anymore. Okay, but where is he? He's still living here at the farm, right? Of course, I was feeling guilty about not being more attentive the last few months to Tim's personal needs. I'll take you to visit him in a moment, she said. But he's changed, and I need to explain why. At least why I think this has happened to him. To us. I nodded and waited for her to go on. You know Timmy and I are in love, and we were living together here at the big house as soulmates. Okay, I said, but lifted my eyebrows. It's true, Mr. Ballou. When we were together privately, during intimacy, a kind of mystical bonding took place. It was as if our spirits became entwined and resonated elegantly as one, like a string on a Stradivarius violin. Each time was a breathtaking experience for both of us. We would finish uplifted, but in sweaty exhaustion. She was looking away now, as if lost in the middle of the memory. Then, after a minute or so, she blinked, frowned, and continued. And I believe, at these moments, a mental exchange was taking place. I appeared to be improving intellectually, benefiting from direct contact with Timmy's intelligence. But, sadly, at the same time, he seemed to be declining, as if I were draining him. 
so much so that the staff here finally believe he must have suffered some physical trauma, perhaps a stroke. He took a battery of medical tests with no negative results. I know now that it was definitely our lovemaking that caused this intellectual transformation between us. She sat quietly for a moment, watching my face. I didn't have any immediate response to her incredible claim. Then she said, Let's go see Timmy. I followed her up the hill to the men's dorm. We went inside and approached a closed door. She knocked. Come in. We entered and Ellie announced, Timmy, you have a visitor. He was sitting at a little card table, still in his pajamas, working on a Lego construction of some kind. Hi, Mr. Blue, he said, smiling broadly. I'm finishing my Lego farm here. Come take a look. Hi, Tim, I said, my voice choked up and very hoarse. I remained standing just inside the doorway, staring at my client. He turned back to the Legos. We watched him work for a few minutes. He was checking the Lego assembly diagrams carefully before deciding on each piece's placement, his brow furrowed with concentration. After placement, he nodded to himself proudly. See you later, Timmy, Ellie said. I followed her back into the hall. That is absolutely devastating, his mental decline, his complete deterioration. No, that's not what you're looking at, Mr. Blue. You see, Timmy is actually improving intellectually now, she said. Last week, he couldn't figure out any of those Lego instructions. He's been getting better each day since we separated two weeks ago, since he came out here to live with the other male residents. We went back to her office. You think by living apart and not being intimate that Tim's recovering his intellectual capacity? I asked, still stunned by Tim's decline. Yes, I'm certain that's the case. I nodded, staring at this beautiful woman. Then I asked, What about you? She smiled wryly and shrugged. I'm afraid whatever happened between us, the transformation isn't permanent for either of us, now that we're separated. Shortly after that, I left, still in a numb state. October, 2014. Ellie had been right. Tim did eventually regain his mental capacity, but he didn't want to write fiction anymore. The one novel for his mother was all. When we last met in San Francisco, I told him his foreign sales were doing exceptionally well. He could live nicely on the royalties from his novel. He said he knew now that he had to stay away from Ellie. He was moving back up to the relative seclusion of Armdor County, where he grew up. His folks both passed on now. During our last direct contact on the phone, I discovered Tim was tending bees. Not long after the call, he sent me his learned article on bee disease research published in an obscure journal, including several pages of incomprehensible statistical tables. He had drawn a happy face on the last page. And Ellie? Well, she had indeed regressed intellectually. She was back working with the other residents in the vineyard and gardens at the mountain farm. Austin told me she proudly showed the occasional visitor to her room, pointing out a book by her favorite writer. Opening Regression to the Mean, 
She indicated the personal inscription, but covered up most of it, explaining, This part is much too personal to share. Only the last line was readable below her hand. Always, Timmy. She'd look up at her guests and smile. We were very close. That was Gene O'Neill's The Algernon Effect, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked probably uncomfortably close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology that he can communicate in this limited function. Any communication can be directed to www.theboojum.org link will be on the show notes, and I would like to add emphasis, special thanks to Seth and the other Stoker episode narrators, as we did ask for quick turnaround times on these, and they delivered. Thank you again, Seth. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, thanks to our intern, Laura Nealis, and webmaster Josh Lightsey. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 